2: Each week we decide who's to blame for a historical tragedy. And each week you tell us if we got it right. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and this is the Aftermath. the Aftermath. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of The Aftermath. Today we're speaking with Cara Robertson, author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden. Let's hear what she has to say about the Lizzie Borden case. Hi, Cara. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you.
2: So can you start off by giving us a little background on who Lizzie Borden was and what her upbringing was like? What role did she play in the Fall River, Massachusetts community?
3: Lizzie Borden was a pretty typical woman of her time. Uh, There were um, many women who were unmarried, 32-year-old, 30-something-year-olds. Uh, Living at home with their parents engaged in good works, uh, which was pretty much the only socially appropriate uh, kind of employment for a a woman of her class. She's somebody who I think you'd say uh, checks all the boxes of um, upper middle class femininity uh, in her era. As I said, engaged in good works, um, uh, active in uh, her church in particular, uh, a Sunday school teacher of Chinese immigrants, someone who just seemed you know, sort of like an exemplary, normal figure. So
2: what was her relationship like with her family, with her father, her stepmother, and her sister?
3: On the surface, it, it would have looked fairly typical, uh, but beneath the surface calm, uh, the Borden household was the site of a Cold War. Uh, they lived together in um, a converted tenement house. So in other words, it had been for two families and it was converted into a one family home. And that's significant only in that it meant that there really weren't any halls. So if we think of the things that that make space more private for people when they're living together, when they're adults living together, for example, the idea that, you you know, you wouldn't have to walk through someone's room to get to another room. Um might be something that, that gave you a sense of more privacy. And in the Borden household, um, the uh, the daughters of the house, Lizzie, who was 32 at the time of the murders and her older sister, Emma, who was 41, conducted their lives as separately as possible from uh, the elder Bordens, uh, Andrew and Abby, uh, who was the stepmother of the daughters. Uh, they, they essentially lived on different sides of the house. Um, And met downstairs in the middle on those occasions that their lives overlapped.
2: And so let's, let's jump into um, the crime scene and could you walk us through what that was like? What did police find when they entered the home of the Borden family on that day?
3: Uh, On the morning of August 4th, the prosperous mill town of fall river, Massachusetts uh, was the site of a grisly double murder. Um, Andrew Borden, who was a very prominent and prosperous local businessman, had been uh, hacked to death on his sitting room sofa, uh, about 10 blows, probably. Uh, And it later transpired that his wife had been killed earlier, uh, and Abby Borden was found face down in an upstairs guest room. uh, And in, in her case, subject to an even more vicious murder that she she received about 19 blows so those who were on the scene were just horrified by the uh the brutality of the crimes it just seemed so out of character for an otherwise fairly quiet um area near the center of town and the assumption was that it must have been the work of some sort of madman and that was the the initial principle that the police went on uh, in terms of in terms of looking for the killer. Uh, the problem with that theory was was simply that uh, that it there were two women who were in the house at the time of the murders who didn't hear anything and who survived unscathed. Uh, the Borden's younger daughter Lizzie uh, and the housemaid Bridget Sullivan, and so it seemed. One, uh, difficult to imagine how uh, a, a crazy person from outside with, with some sort of violent designs on the Bordens would have managed to get in the house and hide himself for an hour and a half between the murders. Um, and it also seemed unlikely that such a person would have avoided either of the two women who were known to be at home at time, at the time.
2: So who were right off the bat some of the initial suspects was Lizzie one of them?
3: Uh Lizzie was was a suspect fairly early on, but a little bit reluctantly. I mean, the the first thing the police did was, was essentially round up the usual suspects. They they assumed that this was going to be that there was going to be some insane immigrants in the area, and that seemed most likely. So there are many police reports of um, of of following up Suspicious activity on the part of of recently arrived Irish or Portuguese immigrants. Uh, But when attention turned to the people in the house, um, there were three possible suspects because there were three people besides Andrew and Abby Borden who woke up in the house that morning. And those were John Morse, Andrew Borden's brother-in-law from uh, his first marriage, uh, Lizzie Borden and uh, Bridget Sullivan, the housekeeper. So the police naturally looked at John Morse first because he was the man. Uh, And also his visit just suspiciously coincided with the murders, Uh, that he was the one who arrived the night before. And so he seemed to be the loose thread in the household. Uh, But he turned out to have uh, an alibi that was worthy of an Agatha Christie novel. And he was riding on a streetcar uh, at the time with supposedly, uh, you know, a dozen priests. And although um, the streetcar conductor couldn't remember him, uh, the conductor did remember the priests. So uh, that seemed to rule him out. Uh, so that left the two women. Uh, and the police, of course, looked at uh, Bridget Sullivan because Irish immigrants were viewed with some suspicion. And although this seemed like the sort of crime that would have been uh, committed by a man because it was a hacking, bloody, awful um, murder that seemed to require strength. Uh, That was something that seemed more consistent with, with um, an Irish maid, basically than a, than a nice um, upper middle-class lady who's, you know, involved in her church. Uh, But Lizzie Borden's account of events um, seemed to, Seemed to uh, exonerate Bridget Sullivan, the maid, uh, and it was also true that she was spotted outside washing windows at the time that the first murder took place—that of Abby Borden. So she seemed to be in the clear. So that really left only Lizzie Borden. And when the police investigated her, they saw that they saw that the this, you know, that all was not pleasant in the Borden household. That there was a fair amount of ill will. Uh, and that Lizzie Borden herself seemed to be at the center of that
2: what right after the murder, what was the media's take on the case?
3: the the first the first hot take was horror that some that you know that a murder like that would have been committed in this town. It was the third largest city in Massachusetts and the most important te- most important uh, textile producer. But it still it wasn't the sort of place where where violent crime was rife. And so the idea that an elderly couple were killed in their home, you know, near the city center and no one saw or heard anything just seemed utterly shocking. Uh, And when it became clear that that, uh, Lizzie Borden, the daughter of uh, Mr. Borden and the stepdaughter of uh, the other victim, Abby Borden, uh, then the the responses split uh, so that The Irish Catholic community and other immigrant communities that were served by their own papers um, wondered why the police were taking so long to arrest the obvious suspect when they would not have been so delicate uh, had the um, suspected person been, say, a mill hand. Uh, And by contrast, the papers that served the Protestant elite of the city, uh, the people who, you know, who owned um, the mills. Uh, and were allied with them. Uh, they were horrified that someone like Lizzie Borden was even suspected. You know, the idea that the idea that that um, was even thought possible was, you know, a bit of an affront to the social order.
2: And how did Lizzie Borden then uh, respond to her arrest? Who who did she enlist to help her in 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 her defense?
3: She had a local lawyer uh, who very quickly saw that he needed um, he needed some assistance, and so he hired a very prominent uh, Boston area trial attorney, uh, and then ultimately the former governor of Massachusetts, uh, who was a folksy character, um, who was known to be very good with juries, and and you know and and had been very popular in the state.
2: So the the actual. Governor of Massachusetts, what's was part of her defense? The former, the oh, former, former governor, former, not, <laughs> the, not the current
3: governor, but but he was someone who appointed one of the judges. So uh, interesting, <laughs> something that something that you wouldn't have seen today. Uh, you know, I think that the, the the you know the thing that occurs to uh, occurs to people looking at it, you know, in in this sort of historical era, I think you'd say the closest thing to this was the O.J. Simpson trial, where. You get this extraordinarily uh, high-powered talent um, to help uh, the defendant fight the charges and also to help um, the defendant construct an image that's going to be most sympathetic. And there are um, earnest, very capable uh, prosecutors who are a little bit clueless um, to the, uh, of the cultural white noise that surrounds the case.
2: And what what was it uh, at the time? What was that white noise?
3: Well, the, the you know the fundamental issue was was really could a woman commit a crime like this? I mean, not just any woman. As a, as I uh, said, that it, it wouldn't have been so shocking had uh, the uh, ha- housekeeper been accused, an Irish immigrant. Um, I mean, it would have still been viewed as terrible, and it and it would have been hard to take. But but the idea that someone who uh, seemed pretty average and was going about her uh, life in the respectable and approved manner, that she would sort of suddenly pick up a hatchet um, and kill her father and her stepmother just seemed um, so beyond the realm of possibility uh, that it it was hard for anybody to take in. Now, Had it been poison, that that might have been a little bit easier to, uh, if you'll excuse me, stomach, (laughs) because, uh, you know, poison was considered to be a feminine weapon. uh, But, you know, part of the difficulty of this crime from the prosecution standpoint is that this is an exceptionally brutal set of murders. And that's something that just seems completely inconsistent with the sort of defendant who's on trial.
2: Can you speak to us about the actual court proceedings? What angle did the prosecution take and why did they contest Lizzie Borden had committed the murders?
3: The prosecution had a straightforward theory, namely that Lizzie Borden had exclusive opportunity as well as motive uh, to commit the crimes, namely that she gave uh, an inconsistent and sort of unbelievable account of how she spent her morning. Uh, Sometimes she was upstairs. Sometimes she was downstairs. Uh, She was ironing handkerchiefs, but the job remained undone. Then she went into the barn and looked for a sinker and ate some pears. Just a, a lot of sort of aimless activity. And the idea was that really no one else could have gotten into the house and hidden himself, thus avoiding both her and the maid. And if that was the case, then the only question is, you know, did she have some kind of Reason, you know, in her own mind or motive for doing it. So, Lizzie Borden had uh, exclusive opportunity. She was the only person um, who technically could have committed the murders. And for motive, uh, the police turned to this cold war uh, that existed in the household and theorized that um, Lizzie Borden had been wanting to kill her stepmother so that her father, perhaps, actually, this was never proven, but I mean, perhaps because she feared her father was going to make a will that was going to disfavor his own daughters in favor of um, his wife uh, or for some other reason, but, but you know, stemming from hard feelings over a property dispute that had happened about five years ago. Uh, and the idea then was that, was that she, um, she always meant to kill her stepmother and her father just sort of wandered in at the wrong time. And so she was forced to kill him as well. This, as you can imagine, is the weakest part of the prosecution's argument, because they just never can quite bring themselves to formulate a theory for why Lizzie Borden would kill her father. Everyone seemed to understand why she might want to kill her stepmother. Wow. I should just say parenthetically, you know, is probably the most sympathetic person in this entire story. She's actually not at all like the stepmother of uh, fairy tales. She seems to have been really... um, a well-meaning, slightly self-effacing woman um, who, who unfortunately was in the middle of um, some very hard personalities. Yeah. Some real
2: family drama that she just kind of walked into. That's right. That's <laughs> right. So what then what is the legal, uh, Lizzie's legal, legal team's defense in the case?
3: Well, they uh, attack the case from a number of angles. I mean, they point out that it's not their job to solve the mystery. You know, in other words, that they don't need a coherent explanation for who else could have done it. Uh, so, from uh, the perspective of of uh, combating this idea of exclusive opportunity uh, and motive, the defense points to other odd characters seen in the neighborhood. Uh, this uh, man, who's referred to as Doctor Handy's wild-eyed man, because. Dr. Handy, a local doctor, is the one who first spots him. Uh, And then there's another man also spotted by a woman who seems to be lurking outside the Borden uh, residence. Uh, And the idea is that simply because you didn't see anyone else go in doesn't mean it wasn't possible for somebody else to go in. Uh, And, you know, one would hate to convict somebody who was really just in the right place at the wrong time, you know, she, it's, it's clear she's supposed to be in her home of a morning. That's what, that's where she's supposed to be attending to the household tasks. And that's a point that the defense hammers home uh, because it makes her seem very ordinary. Um, But, uh, oh, and I'm sorry. So, so that, in other words, that, you know, that they take issue with the idea that a stranger couldn't have gotten in. And then as to motive, they they make this uh, a case of tension between adult stepdaughters and their stepmother. You know, what could be more ordinary than that? You know, women are like that. They just, they have these disputes, but it doesn't actually mean anything. There are lots of stepmothers and stepdaughters who aren't close friends, but that doesn't mean that you know, murder is imminent.
2: So then who is part of the jury and what verdict do they eventually come to?
3: The jury is all male. Uh, There are, um, there are actually no women uh, in, seated on juries in Massachusetts until 1951. Wow. And uh, they're also all white, um, although it was technically possible for African-Americans to serve. And there had been a couple of cases of that. of, of, of that service, um, in this era. Uh, the other thing that's notable is that there's only one Irish Catholic on the jury. And that seemed to have been a deliberate strategy on the part of the, uh, defense that there was a sort of suspicion that, that they might, um, view her, view their client with the hostility that the Irish Catholic paper did. Mm. Uh, and the Irish Catholic paper used to refer to her as the sphinx of coolness because she was too self-controlled, you know, and that, that sense of self-control um, for an unsympathetic viewer uh, s- spoke to some sort of masculine nerve. Uh, and that that made it somehow more likely that she would be a, you know, a murderess. Uh, I mean, I should say that the same—that's um, those the same behavioral qualities uh, were viewed by sympathetic observers as signs of you know inborn bearing and ladylike American grit. Um, so it was very much a question of what lens you were looking through as to how you interpreted her behavior. Um, the, as I as I think I said, the the biggest um, the biggest point in Lizzie Borden's favor was the brutality of the crimes. And although medical experts testified that a woman was perfectly capable of causing that kind of damage, that all that was required was um, sufficient leverage in the hatchet or the axe um, or whatever the implement was. It was never conclusively proven. Um, the defense just simply kept kept saying, contrary to the medical evidence, that that, you know, women just weren't capable of that kind of brutality. And and that seemed to get a sympathetic hearing in the jury room.
2: And they it said that they came up with the verdict in something something like 10 minutes.
3: That's right. They they were unanimous on the first ballot and they just stayed in the jury room for a while um, so that they appeared. Um, reasonably deliberative and out of respect for the um, out of respect for the prosecutor. Uh, So, you know, this is a case, I, I would say not of reasonable doubt, but rather of a unreasonable certainty that someone like Lizzie Borden couldn't have done it.
2: So what was Lizzie's life like after the trial?
3: Well, Mr. Borden um, was known to be a bit of a miser. Uh, and although um, he was very wealthy by Fall River standards, uh, they lived in a you know, a fairly modest home, this converted tenement house, um, in which everybody had the, everyone had her own bedroom, but it, it was by no means grand. And it was in the flats, which is the central business district, which was convenient for his work. Uh, but it was said that Lizzie and Emma... Always wanted to live in the Hill District, which is uh, in a you know social both a geographically elevated and a socially elevated (laughs) area of town. And so, uh, shortly after the uh, she went home in triumph, uh, she and uh, Emma moved to what you might call a McMansion in the highest part of the Hill District. and she continued to attend church, but she was quite quickly shown that she wasn't welcome there. The pews near her were, were empty and she was essentially frozen out by the, um, by the church that had provided the bedrock of her support when she was on trial. Uh, and I think the idea was that, was that um, you know, she was supposed to live down her notoriety and that the uh, elite of the town, as represented by the churchgoers and the um, other people who might have, say, lived in the Hill District, were quite prepared to back her. I mean, she was one of their own. But that's quite different than wanting to, you know, have her to tea mm. afterwards. Wow. So you could say she was she was sort of shunned that 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 the ostracism was the punishment um, Uh, On the other hand, it's also the case that it doesn't seem to have phased Lizzie Borden at all. Uh, She uh, enjoyed having some money. You know, as I said, she moved to a fancier house. She had a a car and driver. She had a seat, a special seat built into the back of the car so that her dogs could ride around with her. Uh, She went to the theater in Boston, you know, and she generally sort of, you know, lived it up. Um, And... I've always thought that the strangest part of the story, um, or maybe the most telling part of the story, is that is that um, with her inheritance, she could have gone anywhere uh, and chosen to live out her life, you know, if not in anonymity, at least not as a constant, um, a constant figure of you know n- local notoriety. And she chose to stay in Fall River. And I think that says something about, you know, her personality, about her nerve. Uh, And and also perhaps about her parochialism, you know, that in a sense, the the extent of her ambition was to live in this better district of Fall River. And she sort of couldn't imagine a life beyond that. Why do you think that
2: over 100 years after these murders and why are we still fascinated by them?
3: I think for, the, for some of the same reasons that the people were at the time, I mean, it really is just shocking to think of a, of a seemingly normal person who's not giving a lot of signs of, of um, massive instability or um, violence. Uh, the, the idea that, that um, such a person, I mean, particularly a woman would suddenly pick up uh, a hatchet and kill her father and stepmother um, and then just go about afterwards and have a kind of normal life, too. Um, I mean, I think it's the, the combination of the brutality of the murders and the um, discreetly veiled and gloved lady who sits in the courtroom uh, accused of them. Uh, it also, you know, is a, it, it, it's almost um, a mythic story if you, if you strip out uh, the historical specificity of it. You know, it's the it's the story of of these almost archetypal figures trapped in a house together, uh, and the tension building and building and building, and all sorts of grievances coming to the surface. The the surface, uh, and then finally, it's a bit of a locked room mystery. You know, there there are only a few people, if you rule out the murderous stranger, who could have committed the crimes, and it's very much dependent on people being at certain places and certain times. And could somebody have hidden or could somebody have gotten back across town? And um, so I've, I've often thought of it as a sort of locked room mystery written by Sophocles.
2: (laughs) It's interesting to think of the, you know, author of this, you know, (laughs) (laughs) story. Um, So at the end of the day, you know, we always asked our guest experts this question, if you had to pick one person or thing, it could be a concept that you think is to blame for the murders that happen in the Borden household, who or what would that be? Do you think that Lizzie Borden was wrongfully accused or did she commit the crime?
3: Well, you know, I am a lawyer as well as a writer, so (laughs) it's, it's difficult for me to commit in that respect. What I, what I'd say is that, you know, I'm in sort of the same place as, as many of the journalists who, who covered it. Um, when they first arrived, anyway, they became Lizzie partisans later. But uh, it, it's hard to imagine how anyone else could have done it, right? And and eluded uh, the women who were in the house at the time. But uh, bigger picture, I, I'd say uh, patriarchy <laughs> is uh, in that uh, the it, it is absurd that you know, people who just didn't get on (laughs) to live with each other. When in fact, um, one imagines, assuming Lizzie Borden did it, that, that, you know, they could have had a quite nice life in a separate house. (laughs) They
2: sure had the money for it.
3: (laughs) Right. It's just, you know, if it were, if it were within the realm of possibility, you know, you just think, you just think they had a couple of, you know, they, they had some spare money. I mean, surely Emma and Lizzie could have moved away and everyone could have had their natural life and just visited at Thanksgiving and Christmas. But sadly, that was not to be.
2: <laughs> well, thank you so much, Cara, for joining us and helping us, you know, understand this very interesting uh, case that has, you know, w- obsessed, we've been obsessed with for over 100 years.
3: Well, thank you. It's my pleasure. I, I look forward to hearing what what you make of it. I think you'll be pleased. (laughs) Um, May I add one thing? Yes, please. There's sort of two things that I I left out. Yeah. uh, And I don't know if they're of any use, you know, so the first is that uh, um, Lizzie Borden was, was um, thought to have tried to purchase prussic acid the day before the murders. Uh, And that was an extremely important piece of evidence for the prosecution because it showed intent, you know, punctured the idea that she was just this innocent bystander in the house, that she was somebody who had murder on her mind. Uh, and also because it is a feminine weapon, unlike the hatchet. Uh, and so the fact that she couldn't get the prussic acid might go a long way towards explaining why she would have picked up this, you know, male weapon, this hatchet, a household implement if there was some urgency to dispatching, um, her father and her stepmother. Um, and then the second thing I, I just left out is that, is that, um, Lizzie Borden burned a dress on the weekend after the murders. And there are many people who believe that, that, that had, um, blood spatter on it. Um, she, by contrast, uh, said that, you know, it had just been old and paint stained and produced, the um, seamstress uh, as well as the painter to to uh, agree that it in fact had been old and paint stained and that that might offer an explanation an innocent explanation for why she might have chosen to burn it
2: interesting okay so these are two very important key key pieces of evidence that we
3: will have yeah so to- they right the the poison doesn't get in at the trial which is important you know, so it limits what the prosecution can argue. Oh. You know, I just, I didn't know how deep in the weeds. You know, <laughs> you wanted.
2: Well, we, we did discuss it. So um, definitely, uh, I, I think that'll be really interesting for our listeners. And it, it is a part of it, so.
3: Right, right. And, yeah. and the other piece of it is that Lizzie Borden never said that she, never agreed that she tried to buy it. So her, the defense um, would have, Argued that the um, identification was false in some way, um, and then as a backup, they they were prepared to argue, and and we can see this from the preliminary arguments they made to exclude the evidence uh, that there are lots of innocent uses for deadly poisons in households in that era. There are lots of cleaning products that that contain benzene and other other things that are that are um, very dangerous volatile gases, uh, and that Lizzie Borden. Supposedly, or whoever it is that asked for the poison said that she wanted it to clean a sealskin cape. And there's some absurdity to that in that it's August in Fall River and it's very hot. Um, and no one had ever heard of such a use for prussic acid. But uh, the defense very skillfully keeps. Uh, the prosecution witnesses from being qualified as experts in that particular area, like they might be experts in furs, but they're not experts in poisons, or they're experts in poisons, but they're not experts in furs. This is where the defense, I think, really shines. Uh, And so that too just gets just gets kept from the jury.
2: Wow. I mean, just so skillful, especially for the time. Um, Thank you so much, Cara, for, uh, you know, diving in. Giving us the the whole scoop. My pleasure. My (laughs) pleasure.
3: Thank you very much.
4: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
2: With us today, we have producer Clayton Early.
1: Hello, everyone.
2: And fact checker Chris Smith. Hello. So how about that? I felt like we were circling in on the, I mean, the patriarchy. Hello. We ended up Mm -hmm. sending Lizzie Borden, of course, to the alarmist jail. But patriarchy was, I
1: mean. There was lots of crossover and it feels good to have a lawyer validate (laughs) us. Can I just start
5: with that? 100%. (laughs) It makes you feel like we're basically lawyers. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Makes you feel like we could be lawyers. I mean, right. Yeah. I'm married to a lawyer. So, you're, so I'm you are a lawyer. Yeah. Basically, I'm a lawyer. Yeah. I, am a lawyer. Yeah. I mean, if you say something and then a lawyer says pretty much the same thing, technically, who's the lawyer?
2: I think we uh, all are, that's, right? That's
5: what I'm saying. I think you are, Chris.
1: <laughs> That sounds like a lawyer would say something like that.
2: Um, but can we please talk about uh, what Kara was saying about the uh, the living situation? Because that was another thing I felt like we were mm-hmm. um, so uh, we were just we were spot on. Really in, we were we yeah, were pretty we were spot sync. on.
1: <laughs> you talking about the floor plan and her just saying that lack of hallways, like that little tidbit is it's a very fascinating. Thing to consider when you're talking about people trapped in like a confined space together.
2: But the way she put it, lack of hallways. I had never thought about that concept and how important mm-hmm. hallways are.
5: Think right? about all the things that happen in hallways. You make out in hallways. Your lockers are in there. I'm thinking mostly of hallways in high schools. Is yeah. that what you guys? Yeah. Are imagine thinking
1: going of? to your your next class and not being able to walk in a hallway to get to your next class. You just are walking
5: through other people's classrooms. What right. a mess! How disruptive that would be. <laughs> No, but I mean, seriously, though, the sense of privacy that a hallway allows for. Mm -hmm.
2: I will never take a hallway for granted ever again.
5: We should expand all hallways,
1: (laughs) make them bigger and better. (laughs) Agreed. So we can have less murdering children (laughs) mad at their parents.
2: Uh, But these roommate tensions, I mean, the fact that that Lizzie just kind of lived on one side of the house and tried not to... You know, uh, uh, involve herself with her parents. I mean, I can't imagine the tension that must have been brewing in that household. Like, it just feels like one of those families and mm-hmm. houses that are so uncomfortable to walk into, yeah. um, and 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 just like you just don't want to be there. I can't imagine that tension.
1: I f- and I feel like the nature of you know the way that. Kara described her. She's like this proper, like high society lady who is very prevalent in her church work. Like you can imagine the type of, like quiet, like reserve, call it repressed if you want. Like the you, you're so angry at your your family or your living situation, but you're like a good Christian. Woman, so there's like only so much that you can express about that, oh.
5: and that was used in her defense and against her. As uh, Cara right. pointed out, they called her. I guess the Catholic newspapers called her oh, the yeah. Sphinx of Coolness. Yes, uh, which right. would be a great uh, title for her first album if Lizzie ever wanted mm. to be a um, rock when she partners but, up with Fleetwood Mac. <laughs> She, I mean, she could have been an amazing jazz musician, and that could have been an amazing first album. But um, I, this, I see her sound? in more of
2: a, a new metal, like a heavy metal genre. Mm,
5: <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, but but regardless, thinking about it in terms of um, how somebody now you could look at that, and the prosecution said something to the effect of, "Well, uh, she's so cool. Uh, like, what's bubbling underneath?" And in her defense, it's like no, she's just like that's that's it's that's evidence against her being able to commit these crimes. She had it all mm-hmm. together. She was right. a what? What did she call? What did uh, Carr say that she's sort of gritty American, um, good American woman? Mm. Um, she, yeah, so, she called her. She was involved in good works. That was the term. Oh works. yeah.
1: Oh, she does good works. It's so, it's also so like all of that just seems so classist to me. This idea that Carr was saying that they couldn't wrap their mind around the fact that like a woman of this nature could just not possibly commit this crime, but the Irish immigrant housekeeper, she could. Right. Because she's just like a poor immigrant and she has the strength and grit to do it, but not these proper ladies so
2: much classism
5: makes you think of the distinctions we make today of people and the way they look and Mm. the way they and what kind of class they come from and Mm -hmm. what we expect of Mm -hmm. people from those classes Mm. it's why we love relearning history because this type of thing just repeats over and over again and some people never learn but we do and so does the alarmy
1: Speaking of repeating history, I thought it was really interesting when she just pointed out, you know, the difference between the two newspapers and how a lot like the Irish Catholic newspaper was very frustrated with why the police weren't arresting her the way that they would someone in their own community. And I was like, "Well, wow, that sounds very familiar. Geez.
2: Why, why are we still living like the yeah. late 1800s? <laughs> You'd think.
5: I don't know. The big bomb that well, Cara dropped at after, I don't know if we're going to include this, I think if, if, if we should, uh-huh. is, is the poison that uh, Lizzie tried to purchase beforehand. Yeah. And we're the fact that that wasn't allowed that. in the trial, I feel like that's huge. Right. Right. Because it totally shows intent, um, and it could have bridged that gap in certain jurors' minds about, is a woman capable of this crime? And it's like, whoa, the female crime is poisoning. So... The female way of murdering right. someone That's is poisoning, a so, crime. and she
2: tried. Jeez. She tried, and there she tried.
5: <laughs> she couldn't, so she. So
2: this is what what ended up happening, right? Um, okay, well, I, I'm so glad we got a chance to speak to Kara and kind of you know get her expert take on this interest, you know, fascinating case. Um, now, I, I feel like the verdict stands, right? I
5: I, I think so
2: because.
5: So just to remind everybody, we put um,
2: Lizzie is in jail. Lizzie in yeah. jail,
5: and the patriarchy got the big slap. Well, we called it
1: female oppression, right? Ah, uh, right. To be technical, right. but I mean, come on, we can.
2: Right, we went back and forth on that, um, but yes, patriarchy. Um, let's. I think let's 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 keep it as is, and and Lizzie, uh, you know, she did get away with it in real life, right? Um, but. Looks like...
1: But not in in, in your world.
2: (laughs) Not in the alarmist world. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, Clayton, is there anything that we kind of have to... uh, Any housekeeping, major housekeeping? How are we doing on reviews? Because I feel like our numbers have not gone up. I don't think we've gotten a new review lately.
1: You know, we got one that I feel like I really want to share. Okay. Because... um, it's a great review, mm-hmm. but it seems it's a little suspect. Mm-hmm. It's titled "Chris is my favorite." What? <laughs> Wait Five a second, stars. Can you say that
5: again? What the title is? Yeah,
1: Chris is my favorite. This was October seventh of twenty twenty-one. <laughs> Chris. Okay. I'm the only. By Chris. Xo Akim, and it says, "I signed up for Apple Premium Plus, and I love it. <laughs> it's three twenty-one a.m., and I'm writing this review because I care so much." <laughs> I don't want to go to Alarmy jail for making the pod go away. The podcast has been a staple of my long walks and bike rides, so thank you. I love history and Chris. I'm glad you're all around, especially Chris, <laughs> and that's a fact.
2: <laughs> wow, oh. very wow. suspect.
1: I mean, and I—that's a great, lovely review. Look, but Chris, look, we, you are on
5: record. I on this have saying you have started <laughs> your own profiles. Fair Fair I have a I have a dicey history of creating false accounts, uh, but I promise this was not me. And I know the thing I'm supposed to say at this point is I'm very humbled. Uh, but honestly, mm-hmm. it actually is the opposite. I feel very proud, and uh, I feel like very uh, opposite of humbled. I feel uh, sort of filled with myself. It's right curious
2: now. that they even said the time that they wrote the review. I don't know, Chris. Right. What were you doing? Late at night on the seventh of October.
5: Well, I don't know. What was Lizzie Borden doing?
1: We should have a trial (laughs) for this for this (laughs) comment. I was just in my room. And we'll decide. Well, a live pod. We'll do it on the podcast. We'll do a live trial and get all the evidence.
2: Exactly. We'll get a guest expert from uh, Apple Premium Plus to. uh, Cara's a
1: lawyer. (laughs) She could represent us, or I don't know, Chris. We'll figure it (laughs) out. We'll
2: we'll decide. (laughs) Yeah. um, okay well yeah, thank you keep them
1: coming yes yeah, keep thank them you, coming
2: uh, Chris or uh, whoever <laughs> <laughs> that was for the review and again you know we really appreciate these reviews they help us get visibility on the show and it's it's really important uh, so we're very grateful and if you haven't done one yet please it takes about I don't know how long did it take you to write that one Chris hey <laughs>
5: nice knock it off nice.
2: <laughs> takes I don't know thirty seconds. <laughs> 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 thank you to the alarmie. Thank you to Carr Robertson, and thank you to my uh, loyal producer uh, Clayton Early, and of course our fact checker Chris Smith. And shout out to Alex Paul, our coordinator and researcher. Stay tuned because we are going to be discussing
1: the Halloween poison candy hysteria. Thank
2: you, Clayton. This is why we love you. <laughs> <laughs>